Drax is the largest provider of renewable electricity in the UK and plays a critical role in ensuring a secure energy system. The company has plans to invest billions in new infrastructure, such as bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which will create thousands of jobs, whilst also delivering the energy needed by homes and businesses up and down the UK. Discover more at Drax.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Heal. Rishi Sunak has praised the approval of the new Rosebank oil field. As we make the transition to renewables, Rishi Sunak said, we will still need oil and gas. It makes sense to use our own. James, can you tell us why this is a story? Yeah, so this is the story that uh, the UK's largest untapped oil and gas fields be given the green light by the regulator. It's called Rosebank, 80 miles west of Shetland, contains around 300 million barrels of oil. Um, and you know, Claire Coutinho has been out, recently appointed energy secretary, appears in this week's magazine, praising the arrival and saying, you know, we will need oil and gas as part of the mix on the path to net zero. It makes a lot of sense to use our own oil supplies rather than importing from elsewhere. Labour has criticised it, but classic, like lots of policies, what Labour's doing right now, they are saying that they don't welcome it, but they won't revoke it if they get into power next year. And really, this is what we've seen earlier in the summer with the Sunak government shifting away from some of the sort of Boris Johnson government rhetoric on net zero and trying to maintain a sort of balanced basket of different types of energy to provide the UK's needs. Fraser, do you think this is good news? And does it show Labour's in a really tricky position when it comes to when it comes to the practicalities of delivering net zero, it can't say that it wouldn't have approved this oil field itself. Tactically, this suits Rishi Sunak. He is in the business of choosing battlegrounds right now. And one of the first battlegrounds he chose was to um, be pro-drilling in the North Sea. And that is deeply controversial. I mean, I, I was this church, which I sometimes go to in Somerset, actually, the priest was asking parishioners on the way out to um, have a look at this petition against stop drilling with North Sea oil. I remember thinking one of the rare instances where politics would ever sort of penetrate to a kind of community like that. Now, of course, I, I disagree with that. And um, I, bank, I think Gary Smith from the GMB Union is exactly right when he told this magazine that if unless you actually want to have a country where fossil fuel is needed, then the only question is where it comes from. Do you use your own or do you import it from abroad? So this is a quite an interesting dividing line because yes, on one level, the, the environmentalists don't like to see new oil fields. Some of them would like the, 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 a ban on any new oil fields in Britain completely. But Obviously, that would simply mean just importing oil from elsewhere until, and will do for as long as Britain is using oil for energy. So Sunak is comfortable with this. He's pleased that this was given the green light. And Labour is in a tricky position. When you've got Labour GMB unions saying, look, the Tories are right in this and I'm afraid to say that Ed Miliband is completely wrong to oppose it, you will notice the difference between a Conservative Party, which is backing it for pretty rational reasons, and a Labour Party, which is verbally giving disapproval, but not in the way that it would revoke it or not really giving reasons why you shouldn't be drilling in the first place. So this right now would be bang If Rishi Sunak were to have a grit, as it were, for announcements that would suit his current agenda of trying to draw battle lines of Labour, this would be slap bang in the middle of that grit. And do you think that a Labour government would probably end up making similar decisions to this? Do you think Rishi Sunak has completely changed now the conversation around net zero? I think Sunak worked out the conversation was changing anyway. A Labour government would, have, of course, have abolished that 2030 um, petrol car yeah. ban. I mean, it wasn't going to happen. We don't have a charging point. The costs weren't coming down. So quite often in politics, you see politicians looking at what's going to happen anyway 
and then calling for it when it's inevitable. So I think this this is a, a no-brainer, to be honest. I mean, it's obvious that so many jobs depend on North Sea oil. It's so necessary for the exchequer, let alone the UK economy. But of course, anybody who wins the next election is going to be granting new oil fields. Of course, Sunak, again, he's been really um, hitting the North Sea with his windfall tax and is responsible for a lot of the decline of investment over there. So he's got some making up to do. And of course, it's not just the dividing lines with Labour as well. There's also the S&P element to, to it as well. And there seems to be a bit of a split there. Humza Youssef has come out and uh, criticised the decision today. And yet you've also got people like Angus McNeil in the party who've uh, talked about Scotland's riches and said in 2014, anti-independence voices said that the oil was running out. Now it seems the oil is back again. And I think the S&P are kind of split on this because clearly it's going to be a move that creates new jobs there. Um, and ask Jack, I think there was a really good piece in the Times the other day talking about how he's very sensible in terms of his tactical interventions and when he chooses to press ahead and you know, pick fights with the nationalists and when, when not to. And so I think that this is not just like battle lines with Labour and wishing it be on their side. It's also an attempt by the UK government to try and show that they're on the side of the you know, ordinary Scotland workers against the SNP government. And James, there's an interesting poll out today by JL Partners about London's mayoral race. It showed that Susan Hall and Sadiq Khan are very close to each other. Can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. So there's a new poll out today that says that Sadiq Khan is on 35% in London, just three points ahead of Susan Hall for the Conservatives on 32%. Uh, This poll was done for The Sun today. And I think what's really interesting is that, first of all, it shows how close the margins are. But second of all, it has in third place Howard Cox of Reform. Howard Cox is a well-known fuel campaigner, a very harsh uh, ULES critic. He's on 8% in that poll. So I think there'll be a lot of pressure in the coming weeks and months um, for Howard Cox and Susan Hall to have some kind of deal, a bit like the discussions we saw a few years ago with Unite the Right in 2015. Um, and of course, the big question hanging over all of this is, will Jeremy Corbyn run as well? And I think odds on he probably won't run, but there are people pushing around him. And if that case, and there was to have uh, a left-leaning candidate rival to Sadiq Khan, and then the right was able to unite behind someone, there'd be a real chance that Sadiq Khan could be in trouble in London. I think this is electrifying for the London mayoral race, because until now, people have thought the Tories were nowhere in this race. They're chosen as a candidate, like somebody nobody really heard of, and that Sadiq Khan had this great national profile. But then again, net zero does strange things to European politics. We've seen the rise of the Farmers' Party in the Netherlands of Gilets Jaunes in Paris. We've seen leaders lose popularity very quickly if they're seen to be prioritising relatively abstract environmental goals ahead of the day-to-day living expenses of um, medium and low-paid citizens. Now, Sadiq Khan, if you ask me, has made a really big mistake with you, Liz. First of all, he's coming up with this fake narrative of there being an air quality emergency. London's air has never been purer in the history of this capital. We've actually got a graph in the Spectator Data Hub showing that there was almost 10 times perhaps more pollution in 300 years ago than there is now. Nitrogen dioxide, the PM2.5, sulfur dioxide, all been absolutely plunging throughout the last few decades. Now, of course, we can and should do better. But to say that there's an emergency that necessitates a tax to get put on Londoners, it just strikes people as dishonest, as if you're using the green agenda to basically impose a tax for them. And that's what gets people's backs up. So this, I think, does have the potential to unseat Sadiq Khan. I don't think the Tories have pulled ahead here. I think he is falling down. And all of a sudden, I personally am going to be paying a lot more attention to London politics because I think there's a real chance now that Sadiq Khan, who, by the way, has written this book called Breathe, he's personally invested in this agenda. He, I think right now he'll be realising that he was a zeitgeist behind. The energy is very quickly draining from this. 
and Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves are right to be telling him he should have dropped it, but he didn't. He pressed ahead. He's going to regret it. I think the more interesting question isn't necessarily the margin between the two of three points. It's the fact that this poll gives Sadiq Khan 35% in Labour London at a time when the party brand only a few months ago was polling something like 30 points ahead of the Conservatives. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that even in Labour circles, and I was talking to Labour advisors the other day, it was just that there's a sense perhaps that he has been quite an underwhelming mayor and that his ULES policy is not well received within the party as well as the rest of the, the rest of the London as a whole. So I think that it may not be necessarily about a question of um, you know who's going to be fundamentally more popular, who's it's more the question of who is um, less unpopular and how can the activists get their vote out really? Who will mobilise their activists to turn out and get the voters out in order to win next May? And finally, GB News seems to be in trouble over comments that Lawrence Fox made about a female political commentator. Fraser, what did you make of the row and do you think Ofcom are going to get involved? Yes, GB News has had lots of enemies wishing it to fall. This is a pretty big stumble, though. There was a a live conversation between Dan Wooden and Lawrence Fox, one of their sort of jokey, laddish things. And given it was going out live, it's pretty difficult to cut or edit something in the podcast. Like right now, if I was to say something daft, Max, I'm sure you would edit it and save me from the embarrassment. But when it's (laughs) live, when it's live, there's not much you can do. So um, Dan Wooden was caught in the system. Worse for Dan Wooden, the presenter, he was seen to be laughing at it. He couldn't it knocked him out of breath. He was trying to recover. So the situation now is that Dan Wooden has been suspended. Lawrence Fox has been suspended. Dan Wooden put out a statement saying he didn't find Fox's comments amusing. Fox responded by releasing a video grab of their conversation where they were both joking about it. We've now seen a succession of GB News presenters. Some of the, like Camilla Tomini and others, are um, expressing their disgust at Lawrence Fox's comments. Now, this will be a very sensitive moment for GB News because there's a lot of people who've been waiting, absolutely waiting for it to trip up in a genuinely reprehensible way, doing something that nobody could really defend. Well, this comes into that category. People like Julia Hartley Brewer is usually a big free speech champion is saying that she was disgusted by those comments. And we're not even going to repeat them here. I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast can see what was said there. But there are some things that don't come under the free speech category. They come under things that should never, ever be said in a broadcaster. So this will raise deeply uncomfortable questions for GB News. And I suspect this story will run and run, actually, because I imagine a lot of its presenters will be wanting to... Take Christopher Hope, for example, recently left The Telegraph to join GB News, an outstanding journalist. And when that happened, to me, this was seen as a real sign of GB News's maturity. It was about to get the heft and the zest which Hope would bring. Now, that something like this to happen is a sort of a burp from the very early days of GB News when there was a bit too much shock jockery along and very much not in the direction where it's trying to go now. So you can see right now a new, a new channel whose growing pains are evident being caught up by basically the lack of process, which you would, and also culturally, if you want to be an on-the-edge kind of broadcaster, you're not really, as a presenter, thinking, OK, I'm, if somebody swears on air, if somebody says something over the line, I'm going to correct them instantly. Most ITV, Sky, BBC presenters would have that valve where they're waiting for if somebody were to say something libelous or sexist or illegal, they would intervene immediately. Dan Wooden didn't do that. And I think that's what's cost him and the channel quite dear. And I think this is of interest to a Westminster audience because I suspect that GB News is going to play a really important part in the next Conservative leadership contest, much like uh, you know the Telegraph traditionally has played that kind of role in names coming out and breaking stories on those races. I suspect GB News, with their new... Um, 
broadcast centre and the Queen Elizabeth Centre just around the corner uh, are increasingly going to be the, the battleground where a lot of these issues are thrashed out in the next leadership contest, be that after an election maybe next year or in future ones. So I think it's a key uh, tipping point, as Fraser says, uh, where they decide what kind of channel they want to be. Thank you, James. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you very much for listening.